Hey everyone, and welcome to Bury the Hatchet. I'm your host, Brian Enstein. You know, tackling touchy subjects in the right way is a special skill, and frankly, not everybody has it. But the inability to understand people we disagree with is tearing apart our communities, our friendships, and our families. But we can do better. We must do better. If you're ready to talk about hard things without the hard feelings, join me as we rediscover the lost arts of listening and reconciliation. Join me as we learn to bury the hatchet. All right, everybody, thanks for joining us for part two of our exploration into the people of the American Revolution. If you were here uh, with us for the last episode, we talked a lot about uh, patriots, American patriots, um, who supported independence from Great Britain, people that you probably have never heard of, but are definitely worth exploring. Today, we're going to dive into a couple of stories that I think are even more interesting, and these are stories of American loyalists. Um, Before we do that, though, just a little bit of food for thought that I always like to start with. You know, sometimes when we're trying to, to discuss an issue with somebody and, and try to see things from their perspective and understand why they believe what they do, one of the things that can make this difficult is that sometimes the people we're talking to aren't even sure themselves why they have the opinions that they do or why they think what they do. And I, I think one of the reasons is that you know, I, ideas or opinions that we hear can cause emotive responses, either positive or negative. We'll hear something and we'll say, oh, that's that's a terrible idea. I don't like the sound of that. Or we'll hear something else and say, yeah, that sounds good. Uh, that's, that's the sort of thing that I want to believe in. And this is just kind of part of human nature, and it can be a good thing as long as we as we understand it. But it can cause a problem when we don't do the self-examination that's required to determine why a certain idea affects us the way it does. And I'm sure you've probably seen this in your own conversations, that you'll be you'll be talking to somebody and then before you know it, everybody gets angry and nobody even knows why. And it's it's just because sometimes you can't even hear a certain opinion without it causing an emotional reaction. And, and this can happen for all kinds of reasons. There are differences in, in personality types, which can affect the things that are important to us. Uh, many of us have past experiences that affect how we interact with certain ideas. And, and this is one reason, you guys, why, why having trust and good relationships with others is so crucial, especially with people that you may disagree with, because... As a general rule, people don't want to open their hearts to be scrutinized by people that they perceive as an enemy. And so if you begin a conversation by antagonizing somebody, you've already shut the door to communication and you're not going to accomplish much because that person's not going to tell you why they really think what they do because they don't trust you. And this just encourages us to, to put up arguments and facades, not to elucidate why we hold the opinions that we do, but to hide it, because that's that can sometimes be a deeply personal thing that we're not going to share with people who don't respect us. And so once again, I have with me my lovely and beautiful co-host, my wife, Emily. Emily, say hi. Hi. Everybody say hi to Emily. I'm sure they did. I'm okay. sure that I'm sure they said hi. Okay. So let's. Uh, you did such a good job um, in our last episode, sort of uh, summarizing the popular conception of the American patriots. Why don't you, you? When when we talk about American loyalists, what what does that mean? Who are we talking about, and how are they typically perceived today? Okay, so these people have the name loyalists because they were loyal or faithful to their original. Um, citizenship as British citizens. So the majority of the people here were British citizens and considered themselves as such. And so there was a group of people who, when the Patriots started doing what the Patriots did um, and causing a ruckus and, I mean... 
let's uh, let's let's actually talk about that a little bit. Okay. What, 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 what do we mean by ruckus? I mean, I think you mentioned last time the the Boston Tea Party was one thing. Sure, and there were a lot of things, and you can read the Declaration of Independence to look at all the official reasons that people were citing for why things were unfair for the British people who were living in the colonies of the United States. So, lots of taxes, you know, the phrase taxation without representation, um, so they weren't being fairly represented in the legislative bodies in Great Britain. So, causing a ruckus... Um, I'm referring to basically the ways in which the people who lived in the colonies started to rebel. So the famous ones are the Boston Tea Party, um, the Boston Massacre. Um, there are all kinds of pamphlets going around, which is like the equivalent of our obnoxious political ads today. Political cartoons up the wazoo. I mean, every way that people could just stir up this idea that like we are being treated unfairly. Let's do something about it. All of that was starting to come up. And there were plenty of peaceful and legal oppositions to the various things that Great Britain was doing that many of the American colonists didn't like. There were petitions, there were associations, there were, uh, you know, certain parties. If you heard of the Sons of Liberty, that was sort of a loose alliance of a lot of these different uh, groups in the various colonies, especially in New England, that they would get into the state legislatures and try to enact measures to try to mitigate the effects of some of these taxes or nullify them entirely. So there are plenty of things that people are doing within the legal system. But sure, but what, nobody's paying attention. Right. And that's the problem. So they, they felt like they were exhausting their legal and quote, quote, correct ways of rebelling or protesting, and their voices were not being heard. So people start to, to protest, and just like we're seeing today with protests in, in our country, there's a group of people who are still saying, yes, but this needs to go about in a legal way. And a lot of those people were loyalists, like, okay, yeah, I want change too, but I still appreciate being a British citizen and all of that affords me. And so there were plenty of people who didn't want change at all. They really wanted things to stay the way they were. Uh, but there were plenty of people who did want change. They just didn't want to fight a war about it. They wanted to keep their British citizenship. They were really holding out on the hope that their country would listen to them if they would just go about this a different way. I don't know, they, they weren't exactly fence-sitters necessarily, although I'm sure there were plenty of fence-sitters with the revolutionary times, just like there are now. But um, loyalists essentially were people who fell on the side of, I'd rather not fight, or I don't want to leave Great Britain so badly that I will actually fight fellow patriots. I will fight fellow colonists. Did I say that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So these are yeah, these so are these fight. are Americans. Yeah, they're all Americans who at this point are all British citizens or I shouldn't say British all subjects. but British subjects. Most of them are British subjects. And some of them wanted to stay that way. And some of them were indifferent about this whole war. I mean, most most people with any great conflict are pretty indifferent about politics, I would say. Um, but there were some people who really really wanted to be independent and Essentially, there were also some people on the other side who really, really, really wanted to not be independent. And when conflict and protest turned into all-out war, um, they took the other side. So they sided with Britain and actually fought against their fellow colonists, fellow Americans, to stay British. And the the important thing that I think is, that we need to understand is too too often we. I mean, we brand them often, certainly the people of their day branded them as traitors to their country. Um, and we we can sort of get this idea that all of the loyalists were either the provincial governors or other government officials or tax collectors or other wealthy, privileged, aristocratic types who would benefit from keeping these poor, freedom-loving Americans in their place. Wait, are you saying that that's what we learned, or that's what they thought back then? 
because that's definitely the narrative that I learned growing up. But I don't think that that's necessarily how it was branded back in the day. I mean, they they would have the loyalists would have branded the patriots as traitors to their country because at this point they all had the same country, which was Britain, not like the United States of America wasn't a thing. Um, I think it's easy to look back in history and say, like, well, the Patriots are right, but right, yeah, it would, the, it would have been like what happened in the Civil War. I mean, a Revolutionary War is just a civil war that was successful. Sure, and the and the American Civil War was a war for independence for the Southern states. Right. Wanted, they just lost, right? So, so instead of calling them Patriots and Loyalists, it's just the North and the South, and we got back the together. Union and the Rebels. Sure, right? Yeah, it was it was the same thing. It, it, different monikers depending on which side you're on and which side ends up winning the conflict, right? So, I, I, and and I love what you did. You know, let's fast forward this to our day. There are people. Let's say there are people in our day who are dissatisfied with the way the country is running, dissatisfied with the treatment they're receiving at the hands of their government. Nobody. Nobody. Just kidding. And so they decide to riot and loot and burn things and attack government officials, all of which ha- the, the Sons of Liberty, the American Patriots, did all of those things leading up to the revolution. They would they would tar and feather um Customs officials, they would uh, they would attack them. They would burn offices of tax collectors and law clerks. They, on one occasion, actually personally attacked the home of the governor of Massachusetts. So we, if we were to sort of fast forward and plant all of this essentially lawlessness into our day, how would we see them? You know, and 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 my point is not to to argue against the the American Revolution, but simply to try and put ourselves into their shoes and recognize that it's not quite as simple, like like you said, Emily. It's not quite as simple as we were led to believe that there were the freedom loving patriots who just wanted to do the right thing, and then there were the the foreign invaders from. Great Britain and their their uh, their, their evil accomplices who lived here yeah, and who were benefiting their from boot licking the... lackeys <laughs> who were just I guess just trying to make the point here that this is a theme that gets repeated throughout history over and over and over again and it's just important for us to recognize that uh, any sort of oversimplified explanation of who these people are is is not really catching the full story. So let's actually look at some of these individuals, um, some of these people, and try to understand, again, on a personal level, why they did what they did, what their situation was, and why they ended up coming down on the side of, of Great Britain. Wait, before we did all of this explaining, you said the loyalists are more interesting than the patriots. Why? Well, to me, the biggest reason why they're more interesting is because they're more unknown. This is a story that isn't really told. Like I said, like you said, the basically what we're told, at least growing up, we get the oversimplified version in in grade school that there were the American patriots fighting for their liberties. And there were also some of these crazy people who fought for the British, but like, they're just kind of disgusting traitors and they're not really worth talking about. They really just wanted to preserve the system of power so they could benefit from it. That's the story that we're told. And it's not correct. It was certainly accurate for some people. There were definitely many government officials and people of high socioeconomic status who really just wanted to preserve the status quo for their own benefit. Certainly there were those people, but there were plenty of American loyalists who had a wide variety of other motivations for why they they took the side that we did and that they did and that's what we want to explore here and i should note first of all that i am indebted um for a lot of this information to uh, a book called liberty's exiles uh it is an excellent book it documents um several of these personal stories of american loyalists their biographies what happened to them during the war and especially where they went after the war because many of these loyalists were not allowed to stay in the new united states they were exiled from from their former country anyway it's a fascinating book again it's liberty's exiles by maya janisoff if you get a chance if this is interesting to you, you should definitely check it out
So let's, first of all, look at a guy by the name of Beverly Robinson. So Beverly Robinson was, he's interesting because at first glance, he does sort of fit that stereotypical loyalist mold. Um, He was born in Virginia, um, but lived most of his life, I should say most of his life in the colonies. He was in New York. He had married a rather wealthy woman named Susanna Phillips, who was from New York. So they had a very large estate there um, just outside the city of New York. He was a soldier. He had actually formed a militia in 1745 to help defend the colony from attacks by Native Americans living nearby. Uh, and he was quite wealthy. Like I said, they had they had a lot of land. They were doing very, very well for themselves. And so he he seems at first glance to be somebody who, you know, he's he's rich, he's well off, he just kind of wants to preserve things the way they are. But if we look a little bit closer at this guy, he again he's interesting because even though he did remain he chose to remain loyal to Great Britain during the war. We also have a lot of sort of little clues that hint that he was also very proud of his identity as an American. Um, One of the things that American patriots did leading up to, um, you know, before the shooting started was they would boycott imported British goods. This was very common. A lot of um, manufactured goods, a lot of Things like glass and fine clothing and China and things like that would be imported from Great Britain. And we do have evidence that Beverly Robinson participated in that. Um, He stopped importing clothing. He stopped importing building materials. um, And he... Did they import from somewhere else, or did they just make their own? They started started making their own. And even though it was more expensive to do that, it was more expensive and sometimes illegal <laughs> to manufacture them in the colonies. Uh, Britain had a lot of control over where things were allowed to be bought and sold and, and things like that. But uh, he he seems to have participated in that for all accounts. So it, it, we don't really have evidence that he ever um, was really involved in like the fight for liberty, so to speak. In fact, he... He he basically wanted to remain neutral. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. Um, didn't want to get involved in the fighting. And, oh, interesting side note here. Uh, there's substantial evidence that he was a childhood friend of George Washington, or at least an acquaintance. We know that Washington, before the fighting started, was uh, he was an infrequent visitor in the Robinson home in New York. So... Even though Beverly Robinson wants to remain neutral in the conflict because he doesn't really see that he has anything to gain from fighting, he's eventually persuaded by his friends to change his mind. And so he forms what he called the Loyal American Regiment, uh, principally made up of uh, citizens from New York, and he was made the colonel. And this regiment fought in several of several important battles during the revolution, uh, including the battle of Fort Montgomery. So basically he likes being an American and is dissatisfied with some of the things that Britain's doing enough that he'll participate in the boycotts, but not enough that he feels like it's worth fighting about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's a and pretty, that's a pretty good explanation. It gets to the point where it's like, okay, but these people are actually fighting and like our citizenship is on the line here. If they're, if they're successful. Yeah. I mean, this, this would be the same. I mean, again, let's fast forward and put this situation in our day where, you know, we live in Iowa and let's say that the whole state of Iowa was burning to the ground because there's a group of people who are so dissatisfied with what, with what Washington DC is doing that, you know, they're, they're burning government buildings in Iowa. They're attacking government officials. They're, destroying government property. They're rioting, looting, pillaging, burning things. And there's just complete lawlessness. What do you do? You know, Beverly's a soldier. And although he wants to stay out of it, he's looking at the chaos around him and says, somebody has to do something. You said to put it in our day, uh, in a real life situation in our day, this could sound like with the Black Lives Matter movement, 
someone who is nominally against racism and says, I've seen how um, our country is unfair as a pattern to black individuals. And so I agree that um, something needs to change and we need to bring awareness to this issue. And then the, the, the protesting started and it was okay. Uh, and then the rioting and looting started and then it started to not be okay. Yeah. And so even though maybe he held this belief that, you know, something that the government is doing or the society at large that is mostly in control is doing is wrong, I am dissatisfied with the result of what could happen because of the people who are causing too much trouble, in his opinion. Yeah, he seems to be saying, in effect... Because now, they're, in our day, there are actual counter-protesters showing up to protests who are willing and ready to fight with their big old guns. And they're not police officers, they're just people who are like, we are keeping this protest in check. It's essentially what the Loyalists were trying to do. Yes, it's very... They were trying to yes. keep the rebellion of the Patriots in check. Yes, it's very much like that. And, and that seems to be what finally tipped the scales for... Beverly Robinson, to convince him to actually take a side on this issue. He seems to be saying, in effect, fight for change, fight for reforms, but don't actually rebel. That's where you're crossing the line. And so he's finally convinced. He does um, He does form his Loyalist Regiment. And I wish we had time to go into the history. It's an interesting history, but the important part for us is, obviously, the revolution succeeds and former loyalists like Beverly Robinson are stripped of their lands. They lose... That's a lot of land. It's a lot of land. They lose all of it. The state of New York confiscates it all and sells it. Um, and they end up fleeing to England where they didn't feel welcome and they didn't feel like anyone appreciated them. And they probably talked funny. They talked funny and they felt like most... Uh, most Englanders just kind of looked down their noses at them because they were Americans. Englanders? Is yeah. that a thing? English? <laughs> I, I don't know. British people? <laughs> uh, okay. I just never heard that in my life. Anyway. <laughs> so it's a really fascinating history. Um, he was actually involved with the, um, the treason of Benedict Arnold. Uh, that's a really interesting story that we don't have time to get into, but... Again, if you get a chance, look it up. Beverly Robinson, um, a really interesting life. And certainly not somebody who it would be fair to characterize as a bootlicking lackey, just worshipping at the altar of everything British. Certainly not who he was. Yeah, so a lot of these stories, I think they end really sad. Yeah, this one, this like, one is pretty sad. <laughs> yeah, well, I think a lot of them are sad. Because the loyalists... Most of them begrudgingly took up arms to maintain order and lost and then had to leave. Mm -hmm. And they didn't want to leave. Something something, yeah. <laughs> something like 70,000 loyalists fled. That's a lot of people. Th fled the, the brand new United States as a result of basically being exiled. Their property was confiscated and many of them... And they didn't belong anywhere because they were, they were Americans. Yep. I mean, that's, uh, they were, a lot of them were born here. And so, like, this guy, he didn't fit in. He didn't, he in didn't. In England, even though he was a British citizen, he didn't fit in in England. And where else was he going to go? It's not yeah. like he's from anywhere else. He didn't it's know, so any, he didn't know any other home. Anyway, so that's Beverly Robinson. Um, let's look again at what I think is an even more compelling story. Uh, this is a guy by the name of Thomas Brown. Uh, Thomas Brown was born in England, uh, and he he moves to Georgia. Yeah, so he moves to Georgia in 1774 at the age of 25. So he's 25 years old, and he's he purchases I think it what is about 5,600 acres. He purchases in Georgia. And he brings with him a group of indentured servants to to work this with him. Yeah, so not slaves, interestingly enough, although that was legal in Georgia, of course. Um, he brings his indentured servants with him 
from England and he's got this brand new 5,600 acre estate. They're cutting down the forest, making a farm. And as far as he can tell, he's got every expectation that he's going to have a really quiet, successful life of a country gentleman here. So he comes here in 1774, which is a rather tumultuous time for the American colonies. And before he really knows what's happening, he's all of a sudden caught up with all of his neighbors in this revolutionary fervor. So he just got here. He doesn't know that he even really considers himself an American, but he does intend to stay here for the rest of his life. But he's got no interest in fighting a war. He's he he has no revolutionary zeal. He's just trying to run a farm. I mean, his life he was he was banking at this point on remaining a British citizen and just going to the colonies. I mean, he wasn't expecting to like be an immigrant in a new country. The colonies were still part of Britain, but it was a different part of Britain that still was like his new adventure. Sure. Not only that, but. It, the reason he received that land was through patronage of the Georgia governor. He also held a position as a local magistrate. So he's looking ahead to his future. And again, he's only 25 years old. So he's looking ahead. He's trying to work his farm. He's got every expectation that in the 5, 10, 15 years ahead of him, he's going to have a prosperous, thriving, productive enterprise here. In Britain. Yeah. and that, and that <laughs> But the American he, colonies of Britain. Yeah. And, and he, he depends on the motherland, so to speak. He depends on Great Britain as a market for his cash crops that he's selling. You know, what what reason does this guy have to take part in the revolution? He doesn't. So like Beverly Robinson, he says, in effect, I'm not going to be a part of this. Uh, and despite the fact that his neighbors, many of his neighbors were ardent patriots and were pleading with him to take up the cause, he... I, he says, I don't have any reason to take up arms against my country. Well, that wasn't good enough for his neighbors. And so one day he finds a mob of 130 armed men on his doorstep who demand that he join their Patriot Association or they threaten to drag him by force to Augusta, which is the capital at the time. So Brown tries to defend himself from this mob of over 100 men, and in the scuffle that ensues, he's knocked unconscious. And while he doesn't entirely remember what happens next, there are bits and pieces of the memory that come back to him that he's writing about years later. He remembers his head throbbing and his body bleeding as he rattles over a track. He's tossed to the ground, and his arms are lashed around the trunk of a tree. He sees his bare legs splayed out in front of him, and he sees hot brown pitch poured over his legs, scalding him and clinging to his skin. The men pile up wood and kindling and set it on, set it on fire under his legs. The flame catches the tar and sears and chars his flesh. His feet are burning, and two of his toes are actually charred into stubs. They're burned off. They seize his broken head by the hair, and start pulling out his hair. And then, grabbing him by the hair, they start to scalp him while he's still alive. So scalped with a fractured skull, burned legs, cut, battered, Thomas Brown somehow survives. Well, the guard helped him. Yeah, so there was somebody who was supposed to be guarding his half-dead body still tied to this tree and the guard has sympathy on him and lets him go um he does eventually see a doctor and he recovers except for his toes except for his toes which never grew back so put yourself in thomas brown's shoes he was just tortured by his neighbors for his disagreeing political opinion yeah what are you gonna do what are you gonna do well now i have a reason to fight yeah in fact, I'm going to quote here from Maya Janisoff's book. She says, The incident turned him, Thomas Brown, from a non-combatant into a militant enemy of the revolution. 
Within a matter of weeks, his feet so badly injured he could not walk, his head still wrapped in bandages, Brown rallied hundreds of backcountry residents to form a loyalist militia, the King's Rangers, and fight back. Physically and mentally brutalized by the Patriots, Brown in turn earned notoriety as a particularly ruthless, vindictive loyalist commander. Yeah, that's what I would do. I mean, I'm glad that I lived in the United States, but uh, the Patriots were jerks. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes, certainly they were. They were for this guy, and, and, and you know, this is the story. This is the kind of story that doesn't get told. This is the kind of guy. We who... We don't want the Patriots to be jerks. We want the Patriots to be the good guy fighting the evil king. Yeah, and this guy would get lumped in as he's a traitor to his country. He's an enemy to liberty. Well, again, what would you do in his shoes? Yeah, uh, exactly what he did. Cool. Next. Oh wait. Not next. What happened to him? So Thomas Brown, along with several thousand other essentially loyalist refugees from the colonies, went to the British territory at St. Augustine, Florida. Um, And you can imagine their dismay to discover that the treaty ending the revolution, the British ceded East Florida to Spain. So now these guys aren't even in British territory anymore. Their land has once again been taken out from under them and given to another country. So some of them stayed there in East Florida and worked with the Spanish authorities and just tried to make a new home there as Spanish subjects instead of British subjects. Uh, Thomas Brown moved on. Uh, He actually lived in the Bahamas for a while and eventually died in St. Vincent Island in 1825. And it's important to note that people like Thomas Brown, just because they decided to fight for the British does not mean that they wholeheartedly agreed with everything the British were doing. In fact, Thomas Brown sort of made himself a nuisance during his time in the Caribbean uh, because he was frequently protesting the way that the British administration was handling things in the, on the Caribbean islands that they owned. So these are, these are not, simple-minded people who just turn off their brains and follow orders no, for, the, for the most but, part. But they were people who loved their country. Yeah. Because people who love their country are willing to fight for it to make it what they think that it should be. Mm-hmm. People who don't like their country leave or just try to ignore it the best they can. But if he's protesting, it means he's trying to change something because he believes in his country to do it. Yeah. Maybe that's me as an American talking. That's what I think protests are about. Okay, moving on. <laughs> so now let's look at uh, a really interesting case. This is a guy by the name of George Lyle. Um, and he was a former slave. Um, it, he was born as a slave in Virginia. Uh, he was taken to Georgia later in life. And he is interesting because of his work as a preacher. Well, lots of, sorry, lots of slaves or former slaves were loyalists because the British offered them freedom. That's the version of history that I heard. It was like the people who knew what was what were patriots. And then there were like rich people who just wanted all the power. But then there were the the slaves who wanted freedom and they were promised freedom if they fought as loyalists. So, like, we'll give them a pass because that's a righteous goal. <laughs> but I'm, was that one of, was he one of those people or was so he? He was not. He's actually an exception to that. You're exactly right. There were thousands of former slaves who ran away from their masters and joined the British cause in order to, to get their freedom. That That's certainly true. Uh, and that's actually a really important part of the loyalist exile is what happened to those those former slaves. That's that's a really interesting story. George Lyle, oh, however, I know. George Lyle is actually an exception to that. So he, again, he he was taken to Georgia, um, and he he was owned by the, by a guy named Henry Sharp. Now Henry Sharp was a deacon in a Baptist church, um, presided over by a Reverend Matthew Moore. And George, while he's there with his master, Henry Sharp, in this church, 
He believes in what Reverend Moore is teaching. He is converted, becomes a very ardent Baptist, and starts to preach to the other slaves. And his master encourages this, which was rare at the time. What was also rare is that his master, Henry Sharp, set him free. So by the time the revolution began, George Lye was actually a free man who has basically taken up God's work as his own, and he is going from one... On fire for Jesus. He's on fire. He is on fire. And basically, he is the principal reason why the American South, especially the Black American South, is predominantly Baptist. Historically, he and his associates are the reason for that, because they went from one community to another setting the countryside on fire for Jesus. That's what this guy did. So he so he was a freed slave. Correct. Who found Jesus through his former master mm-hmm. and then went around preaching the way of the Baptists in the American South. Yes, and what's interesting is that... Before the revolution. Before the revolution, okay. yeah. And what's interesting is that in some of the communities that he preached in and would establish churches, many of his followers were actually white. So there were white people in the back countries of Georgia and South Carolina who were essentially the acolytes of this former slave. Really interesting dynamic there. Sweet. So his master, Henry Sharp, who was a loyalist, uh, who had actually joined a loyalist militia, um, he died in the war in 1779. So Lyle continues to do his his preaching work. So he liked his master, his they, former master. They, they got along They seem to have got along really well um, cool. as, as far as slave-master relationships go. Well, sure. Uh, and I I would imagine that his relationship with his master was one of the reasons why Lyle came down on the side of the British, although he never actually fought. Um, in fact, what he said was that when when the war was over and all of these loyalists were essentially being exiled and they were fleeing North America, George Lyle, even though he was a free man, chose to go with them. Well, those were his people that he was preaching to. Not only that, but he didn't want to risk re-enslavement. Ah, yeah. So he does. He takes off and he goes to Kingston, Jamaica. And this is only about a decade before slavery is illegal in the British Empire. Yes. So I'm sure there were already circulating conversations about that. Yes. That as a free man, he would have known about. And I bet the writing was on the wall when now where he lives is no longer under British control. And all of these people still like slavery. So that's probably not going to change here. That would, yeah, that would probably yes. cause fear for re-enslavement. Yes, the yeah. the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire was still some ways off at this point, but, but not super 1790s. I right. mean, it wasn't it was like but 10 it was, years later. Yes, that's a good point. There was the, the abolition Not move, that he would have known that in the future, but I'm what I'm saying is I I think that he would have been able to see that those conversations were starting in Britain, but not in America. Right, yeah. The, so the abolitionists the were making much when greater America headway was in England. Still, when America was still far to Britain, there was more hope that that was going to happen yeah. in America. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so this guy eventually settles in Jamaica, where, again, he continues his preaching work. And, again, he and his associates are the principal reason for the strong presence of the Baptist Church Jamaica in Jamaica. Is Jamaica is British. Yes. I mean, it's not, but at this point it's yes. ruled by... Yes, Jamaica, Jamaica at the time is a British colony. So again, this is an interesting place for a guy to go who's afraid of being re-enslaved. But, I mean, he he really was absorbed in his work. He felt like it was his calling to save the souls of black slaves by bringing them into, into the Baptist faith. And he... He really went at it with a vengeance. So that was his reason 
for for siding with the British. It was his way of continuing his work. So this guy's ending seems less sad. He chose to go. I he mean, did. That I seems mean, less sad to me. He wasn't forced out. Sure, he didn't have any land to be confiscated. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he wasn't, un- unlike many other uh, blacks who left after the revolution, many of them were carried off by their loyalist masters because they were still slaves. People like Beverly Robinson, for example, who did own slaves and took them with him when he fled and many, many others. But Lau was an exception to this. And I think that's, that's part of what makes him interesting. Parenthetically, before we move on to our, our next person, um, in line with the same topic um, is a fascinating story that, again, you can find in Liberty's Exiles by Maya Janisoff about how a group of these former slaves who became loyalists, British loyalists, were involved in a, an effort by British abolitionists to resettle West Africa. So they took several of these former slaves and tried to establish British colonies with them in West Africa. A really, really interesting story there that is especially relevant in the the politics of West Africa today. So if you remember, in our Patriot episode, we talked about a guy named Joseph Lewis Cook, who was all kinds of cultural identities going on. He was Abenaki, he was Mohawk, he was French. He was part of several um, native... Not necessarily part of several tribes, but he had heritage or identity somehow from participation or living there from several tribes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And he is notable because he came down on the side of the American Patriots. So he was uh, a Native American and of African descent. Oh, yeah, that's right. Who fought for the revolution. And he was the highest ranking officer. Of- and he had a nemesis. Yeah, he did have a nemesis. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, this is a guy by the name of Joseph Brandt, who was also a Mohawk military and political leader. Um, his Mohawk name, which I'm not going to pronounce correctly, is Tyendanegia. So he is interesting because he went the opposite direction. So he comes from the same... A, a very similar background to Joseph Cook, but Joseph Brandt decides to use his influence with the Six Nations of the Iroquois Confederacy to try and persuade them to fight for the British and against the Americans. And they had several really good reasons for doing this. Most notably, British promises that if the Iroquois would support the British, the British would respect their claims to the land in the Ohio River Valley. It's a pretty strong incentive. Now, most of these people, I I should say, the Iroquois didn't really have a reason to love the British any more than the Americans. This was mostly a pragmatic decision, at least as far as Joseph Brandt was concerned. They just wanted anyone to uphold their promises, really, to not be on their land. Yeah. That's that's mostly what this was. Um, and so he, like you said, he sort of became a nemesis of Joseph Lewis Cook, who came down on the American side. And Joseph Brandt actually, on two occasions, traveled to Great Britain. And on one occasion, he actually met King George. And Joseph Brandt was interesting because he, in in many ways, in his customs... And his language and his manner of dress and thinking, he was actually very similar to the British. Uh, he had very close relations to um, several of the British ministers of Indian Affairs. So he he certainly was not a wild and uncultured savage, <laughs> as the Americans often saw him. But when he went to England, he dressed himself up that way. It, it, it was sort of as a wild savage. It, exactly. Why, yeah. Why did why would he play that role for attention? And the it it was it was a way it was a diplomatic decision more than anything, because the British people, because of the revolution and because of the promises that were being made to 
the Mohawks and the other nations, the British people liked to see themselves as the protectors and defenders and guardians of the helpless savages against the rebellious Americans. So he presents himself as basically the savage warrior king from the woods of North America because that's the part pleading, that he needed to play. Pleading with them to say, look, I am a native. Look how native I am. Right. Please, please, please beat the Americans and keep your promises to not step on our lands. Right. It was essentially a way of endearing himself Got it. to the to the British and, and seemed to work pretty well by all accounts. But of course, as we know, um, they were not successful. The revolution succeeded. And so Joseph Brandt now finds himself in a difficult situation. And all of the other Native Americans who, who sided with the British along with him. Because not only have the British lost the war, which is only going to strengthen American incursions into their land. But in the Treaty of 1783, the British ceded all of the Iroquois land to the Americans. Ouch. So Joseph Brandt and his people had the rugs pulled out from under them again. Mm-hmm. Where their former allies, the British, were well, not their former allies, their allies, the British, did not, when, when push came to shove, they didn't... They didn't go, do anything. They didn't, yeah, they didn't go to the wall for them at all. So here again, they're in a pickle. Did they stay on their land? <laughs> Joseph Brandt did not. And most of them did not. Well, I mean, eventually, I know they all got kicked out. Yeah. So what? Uh, this is actually really interesting. So what? What Brant did? Um, so now he can see the writing on the wall because now he knows that the Americans are coming for their land, and the British aren't. They just signed a peace treaty with the Americans, so they're not going to do anything to stop them. And he knows that they are not strong enough to stop it by themselves. And so at this point. Brandt is actually more influential with the rest of the Iroquois than he was before the war. What happened in a nutshell is that he makes a deal with the British governors in Canada, in Quebec, to give their land to the Iroquois. So they move up to Canada, into Quebec. And even though, at least at the beginning... The understanding is that they are settling on British land. Joseph Brandt has it in his head to form an independent confederacy of, of native peoples. He's trying to form alliances with the other native nations. He's trying to encourage more settlement into their, you know, their, their settlements in Quebec to try and build their numbers and to try and get the military and political and diplomatic clout that they need to actually bargain for total independence and autonomy to actually form their own nation finally in in canada in canada yeah okay and long story short it doesn't work why uh lots and lots of reasons okay mostly because not enough support came. not not enough support not enough unity among the different tribes uh the British actually toyed with the idea for a while of having uh, Brant and his people be like a buffer zone between British Canada and the United States. But when in the early uh, 1800s, the diplomatic situation shifted with the United States, they no longer the British, the British no longer saw that as being in their best interests. So support for the plan dried up in Canada and Brandt didn't have the military power to just fight for it. That sucks. So, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, again, put yourself in his shoes. He's, he certainly doesn't love everything about the British Empire. But in the situation that he was in before the revolution, what else do you do? What else do you do? You know? Yeah. As, as a native, I would imagine that it would be hard to choose because none of the white people <laughs> no matter what country they're from are respecting the fact that you live there and it's not theirs to take uh 
So I don't know. I, get, I mean, just go with whoever seems the most trustworthy at the time so that you can keep your own stuff. One bitter disappointment after another. So the last story that we want to talk about here um, is, in all fairness, uh, these this guy wouldn't technically be considered a loyalist uh, because he was not an American, but I still think it's a story that needs to be told. Um, if you're familiar at all with uh, the history of the revolution, you know that one of the things that the British did that angered the Americans more than almost more than anything else was that the British hired foreign troops to help them fight the war. This is your family history. Yeah, I, I think so. It was it was pretty common practice at the time for um, European princes and kings to hire out their armies and their soldiers to fight for somebody else. Because um, armies are expensive, and this was the way of helping the army pay for itself. And so several of the German princes, most notably uh, the German states of Hesse Kassel and Hesse Hanau, they had a really good relationship with King George uh, of Great Britain. And so they they hired out their soldiers, about 30,000 of these German or Hessian soldiers fought for the British during the war. And they were about one fourth of the total British army. That's a lot. It is a lot. And the Americans hated them. A lot of it was propaganda. They were depicted as barbaric. These are mercenaries. Um, there were a lot of overblown stories printed in the colonies of atrocities committed by Hessians. The, the looting, pillaging, uh, the murdering of American prisoners, uh, raping American women... Some of those stories were true. A lot of them were not. Um, the Hessians certainly took part in a lot of the evils that go along with war just as much as anyone else did. But they were especially hated. And they're actually mentioned in the Declaration of Independence as a reason why the Americans felt they could no longer stay with Great Britain. is because any any monarch that would hire a foreign army to come and fight against his own people... They said, You're, that's just not, that's not the sort of thing we're going to put up with. So the reason I bring this up is, obviously, Hessian soldiers are people too, and their stories are worth telling. And as Emily mentioned, I'm fairly certain that one of my ancestors was, was one of these Hessian soldiers. And although I don't know too much about him personally, so we're not going to tell his story, we're going to tell a similar story. This is a guy by the name of Conrad Crane. So Conrad Crane is born in Germany, in Allendorf, in 1749. His father died when Conrad was 13 years old, and he was inducted into the Hessian army in 1769. And, so he's 20. Yeah. So in 1775, he departs with about 12,000 soldiers from his company, uh, to to go and fight in the Americas. So now he's 26. Yeah. <laughs> so he's 26. He His father died when he's 13. And it was actually really common um, at the time in, in in this part of Germany to to be a soldier. Something like 5 to 6% of the male population were soldiers. Professional soldiers. So this was a common trade at the time. So... We, we do have some details in the battles that he served in, but the part that I want to focus on is when he's captured. So he is captured at the very famous Battle of Trenton, where Washington and his ragtag band of brothers cross the Delaware River in the dead of night and attack the drunken, sleepy Hessians at Trenton on Christmas morning. Well, they weren't drunk, but they did surprise them. Uh, and Conrad, along with about a thousand other Hessian soldiers are, are taken prisoner. And this is where the interesting part of his story begins, is as a prisoner of war. So he, like all of the other prisoners, they're paraded through Philadelphia to raise the morale of the people, like, look at all these prisoners we got. And then the Americans are like, well, what do we do with these guys? <laughs> so... We've never had a prisoner before. Yeah. Well, they never had so many, and they don't know what to do with them. Yeah. 
We've so, never won anything before. What do we do? <laughs> so Conrad and about 400 other prisoners are signed out to work for local farmers and merchants and tradesmen. They're, they're basically used as slave labor for the local people to help replace the local Americans who are fighting in the Continental Army. Okay. So Conrad was assigned to a guy by the name of Peter Heilman uh, to work on his farm. And then, so he works there for some time, and then a prisoner exchange takes place, and Conrad goes back to New York to to join join the British. He's he's exchanged for for American prisoners, and then he's captured again uh, while he's on board a transport ship. Uh, the transport ship that he's on is attacked by an American privateer. He's captured again, and so he finds himself a prisoner again. So he's back in a jail in Philadelphia. And this, what's interesting is that he volunteers to go back to the same town that he was working in before, this time working with a shoemaker. And we don't know much else about his personal life, and we don't have any of his personal writings, but when the war finally ended and all of these Hessian soldiers pack up and go back to Germany, Conrad Crane is not on the boat. He decides... To stay, he essentially he essentially deserts his regiment and decides to stay in the little German American farming community that he has been working for as a prisoner. So he stays there, and he eventually um, becomes a citizen. He purchases a farm for himself, and he gets married and raises a family here. But what's interesting to me is I found out that his story is not unique. Something like 5,000 Hessian soldiers, one-sixth of these Hessian soldiers who came to America stayed. They deserted their regiments and stayed and settled in the new United States. Wow. I mean, that's where we get a lot of German people from. Yeah, yeah. that's that's one big reason for it. Is that why the German people were disliked? Probably a big reason for it. In fact, we know that... Conrad himself, um, on at least one occasion, was hunted by British agents as a deserter mm. because they were not interested in letting deserters get off without punishment. But he was also hunted and harassed by people who knew that he had just fought he, against them in the war. Yeah, exactly. So he tried to blend in and be like the other German Americans in Pennsylvania, but anybody who knew that he had been a Hessian soldier, most of them did not treat him kindly because mm. of course he was a former enemy. So here again is, is a really interesting line that he's trying to walk. So why did he stay? He just liked it. Is there a girl? Well, again, we, we, we don't have any, but these, these are the questions that I wish we knew. Like we don't have any of his personal writings. And as a general rule, we don't, celebrate people who desert the army. I mean, we tend to see that as a very cowardly thing to do. I mean, the people who deserted the Continental Army aren't generally generally lauded as heroes. But we do know that because those German principalities relied so heavily on hiring out their armies to other states, if they couldn't find enough people to fill the ranks, they would impress them conscript them, draft them, beat them, drag them out, and haul them off to the army. So we don't know that Conrad was conscripted or that he was in the army against his will, but we know that there were many soldiers who were, and those were principally the ones who chose to stay because they didn't want to be in the army in the first place. So when they got a chance to just leave and go make it Try to make it on their own. Try to make America. it on their own. They they took up they took up the chance. Cool, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I know that you're someone in your family did that. I just didn't realize that was a common thing. Yeah, I and this again, this is the sort of thing that doesn't get told if all we hear is bad Germans. Bad Germans. <laughs> they were <clears throat> ruthless professional killers who. You know, basically, they 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 were murderers. They fought and killed people for money, and they were they were brutal, 
had no respect for prisoners, were just interested in killing and looting and burning and raping everyone that they could. That's and going home. And then yeah, and then going home this was just to live a big yeah. I mean, that's the story that circulated in the American colonies at the time, and it sort of sticks around because the Patriots won. I was never taught really much about this, except for, like, the British hired other people to come in and fight for their side from Germany. But, I mean, we got the French to come in and help us, so it seemed to balance out. Yeah. I don't know. That's all I really heard about it. I didn't hear this narrative that they were seen as really brutal and terrible. But yeah. I'm sure that that was happening at the time. Really digging into the stories of loyalists makes me wonder where I would have really fallen on that issue. I definitely have a lot of um, empathy for loyalists. So the point of all of this, in addition to the interesting stories themselves, is in history, just like today, always remember that People that you don't like, people that have opinions you don't like, people that come down on the other side of important issues are people too. And their stories are just as human and just as complicated. And if you'll take the time, just as understandable as your own. Yeah. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Bury the Hatchet. I hope you've learned something today to help you better understand the people in your life, especially those you disagree with. For suggestions or questions about the show, shoot me an email at podcastburythehatchet at gmail.com. Again, that's podcastburythehatchet at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time.